Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Work more tired than I was before I went on vacation, but uh, but anyway, it was good, and it was a pleasure to uh, to hear Kevin share with us, teach with us from the book of Isaiah. But today we are back uh, in the book of Matthew. So in your Bibles, if you would so kindly please turn to the book of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we want you to have one this morning and we want you to take it with you if you need one. So right outside the door, Adam's out there. Uh, you could, he'll get you a Bible. Just kind of give him a, a little look and he'll, he'll get that for you. This morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 9. So while you're turning there, let me remind you of a couple things. We've been in Matthew chapter 9 for about five weeks now, plus you throw in the week where I wasn't here. So it's been over a month, a month and a half since we've looked at some of these accounts here in the book of Matthew 9. So let me remind you, they're, they're in the village of Capernaum. This is Jesus's new home, if you will. He moved to Capernaum and didn't really have a house. He stayed with other people, but he moved to Capernaum shortly after leaving the village of Nazareth. And we've learned some things in Matthew chapter 9. One thing we saw that Jesus was teaching there in the village of Capernaum, and people from every other village were coming to hear him speak. So one instance in particular, he's in a home and it's packed. Everybody has gathered to hear this Jesus teach. And there's some friends who decide that, you know what, our buddy who's been paralyzed for however long he's been paralyzed, he needs to get in there to Jesus. So they go through the process. They bring this friend right up to the house, but they can't get in the house. But they're not dissuaded. They don't give up. And they go up under the roof we read. They tear a hole into the roof. They lower the man down there in front of Jesus. And the man is healed so much so that he's able to walk out of the house. I kind of gave you a little bit of an idea that Jesus walked the guy to the door and then down the street. And while he walked the man down the street, he comes across the man sitting at a tax booth. And we looked at that story. And that was the story of a tax collector named Matthew, the man who wrote this particular book. And to Matthew's surprise, to everybody's surprise, no doubt, Jesus says to Matthew, a tax collector, a, ser- a term synonymous with sinner, he says to this sinner, come and follow me. And Matthew does. And then we saw that Matthew says, you know what, I'm a sinner. I know it. And I have a lot of friends that are sinners. They need to hear this message too. And so Jesus, or excuse me, Matthew invites all of his friends to a dinner party. And at that dinner party, the guest of honor is Jesus. And he brings all these tax collectors, all these sinners into this place where Jesus can speak with them, teach them, share with them the same hope that he himself experienced. A rough lot of people for sure, known for their immorality. But as a new follower of Christ, Matthew is, he knows that there's going to be some changes in his life and he wants to introduce his friends to these people as well. And so he throws this party for them. Now, you remember that the religious leaders had written off the tax collectors. They had written off the sinners. You want to live that lifestyle? Fine. Then you can go to hell if that's what you want to do. They had written them off. There was no hope for them. And so since many of the tax collectors and sinners heard that message, they said, well, I guess if I'm going to go to hell anyway, I might as well really go to hell and kind of live it up here on the earth. And so they did. And they adopted a lifestyle of immorality. And the religious leaders, as I said, had written them off. But then here comes this religious leader, this traveling itinerant rabbi comes on the scene and extends a hand of invite. And Matthew responds to that. And his desire is to see his friends respond to that. So he throws a party for them. And that is where we pick up today. So if you look in your Bibles at verse 14, 
We're going to read Matthew 9, verses 14 to 17. The context is this party that's going on. It says, Now then the disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Well, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put in fresh wineskins, and so then both are preserved. And so, while this party is going on inside of the house, there's a commotion that is going on outside of the house. Inside of the house, you have a bunch of tax collectors, you have a bunch of sinners, you have Jesus and you have the disciples, and they are having a sanctified party. They're gathering together, they're eating food, they're laughing, there's teaching that is going on, they're enjoying one another. That's inside the house, but outside of the house, there's a large gathering of people that had also been following Jesus, but they didn't get access into the house. Just so many people can go in the house, and these guys don't get access into the house, but they're milling about outside of the home. One of those groups of people, Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 said, are, or is the disciples of John. Now, we know in the Bible that there are a number of people that are named John, five in particular, that are named John in the Bible. Two of those Johns are pretty well-known people. John the Baptist, for instance, and then also John the, uh, the disciple or the apostle of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written by that particular John. This John that we're referring to here, where it says the disciples of John, these are disciples of John the Baptist. Now, we know some things about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. It was John the Baptist who, during the early days of his ministry, called people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We saw that in Matthew chapter 3. You may recall, we looked over at John chapter 1. It was John the Baptist that pointed at Jesus one day, and he declared to his disciples, he said, right there, that guy over there, that's the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. We learned, we looked up in Matthew chapter 11 at the time we were considering John. It was John the Baptist whom Jesus referred to as the greatest of those that were born of women. And the reason why John would be considered the greatest of those that were born of women is because John was the prophet. He was the only prophet that could actually point to the one that he was prophesying about. And so, as such, Jesus refers to him as the greatest of all of the prophets. And at this time, in the order of things, we are about a year into Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist has been put in prison because he spoke out against the ruler of the day, Herod Antipas. But his ministry isn't over. It certainly has been limited uh, a bit, but his ministry isn't over. And his active ministry continues to be one of preparation and repentance. And so when we looked back in our study of Matthew chapter 3, at that time I made this statement about John's ministry. Maybe you remember these words. I said, John's message was that the king is coming and it's time to remove from your life anything that would hinder his kingship in your life. 
John's message was that the king is coming and it's time for you to remove from your life anything that would hinder his kingship. Do you remember me sharing that back then? Some of, no? You do, really? Oh, what an honor. Okay, so anyway, that was his message. Now, there's a, sobri- a sobriety to that message because it's a, it's a message that is designed to be met with humble preparation and with repentance. And that's what John's disciples have continued to do, even though John is in jail and Jesus has been on the the scene in other areas of Israel. And so then imagine their surprise and maybe even their frustration when their stomachs are growling because they've been fasting and Jesus and his disciples are inside having a rip-roaring time they're at the party. I don't know if you've ever come on the scene with a bunch of Christians or something and you've been fasting and nobody else it seems is. You know, you come to the potluck not knowing there was a potluck and you've been fasting and everyone else is having a feast and you're thinking, that's great, you all religious people, you or whatever. You know, you start to grumble, you start to complain in your hunger and that's what happens here. The mumbling, it seems, begins to occur. So in verse 14, it's, they ask the question, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? They're saying things like this. This isn't fair. They're saying, well, how come we have to, you know, and finish the sentence? Why do they and finish the sentence? And from the verse, it seems that the Pharisees, who have also sort of followed along with this crowd of people, it seems they begin to chime in as right. Yeah, that's not really religious. That's not spiritual. Look at the people he's in there with. You know, and so on and so forth. And so finally, somebody raises the issue. I imagine in my mind, one of Jesus' disciples comes out of the party, maybe goes to the bathroom or he gets more ice for the drinks or something like that. And they catch him while he's out there. And they say, hey, come here, buddy. We want to ask you a question. How come you're, uh, why do we and the Pharisees, why do we fast, but you and Jesus' disciples do not? Now, we know why the Pharisees fast. Jesus told us that they fair. I think it was Matthew chapter six or so five. They fast because they're hypocrites. They fasted because they wanted everyone to look at them and say, wow, what spiritual people you are. And so they would go out and make sure everybody knew. Now, they probably would never say, well, I'm fasting today, but they would look so miserable. People were like, what's the matter with you? Well, it's OK. I'm fasting, you know, as you know, or whatever. And so they did. it, And then they were like, yeah, somebody asked me. They were delighted that people would think that they were religious. And so certainly, we don't want Jesus' disciples emulating them, right? So that's certainly not the example. As I mentioned earlier, the disciples of John, they fasted because John's ministry was a ministry of preparing themselves for the coming of the king. Well, the king has come. We're sitting with him here in this room. And so why would we be fasting if we're preparing for the kingdom co- to, the king to come if the king is right here with us? And so that's not an example they wanted to emulate as well. And so Jesus actually, he's the one who answers the question. And in verse 15, he said, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they can fast. And so Jesus, he compares himself to the bridegroom. We don't really use the term bridegroom. He compares himself to the groom of this wedding here at a wedding. And he makes the point that now is not the time to be fasting or mourning. When the bride arrives, when the groom arrives, now's the time to be feasting. I remember our wedding that uh, Jeff and Linda Simpson, uh, missionaries now in Kenya. But when the two of them got married, something happened with their photos. 
And so after the church service and when they, they actually had the ceremony, they went off to take some pictures. All the rest of us were supposed to go uh, to the reception hall and wait for them. And their pictures took like three hours. And we're sitting there, and the DJ's doing the best he can to keep us entertained, and no one's allowed to eat any food or anything like that. And we're thinking, this is getting ridiculous or whatever. But tell, I'll tell you, when the bride and the groom arrived, we started feasting because we were starving. People were going out to Burger King and grabbing burgers and stuff like that. And so when the bride and the groom come, now it's time for celebration. But Jesus, notice, he also makes a veiled reference to the time, to the time when he would no longer be with them. And we know that's a reference to his death and his ascension. And so in that verse, he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. It's at that time that mourning can take place and fasting can take place. But for now, the bridegroom is with them and a new work is underway. And so to drive home his point, Jesus offers to them two word pictures, parables in a sense, if you will, as he liked to kind of tell these stories to make his point People heard the story, they were engrossed by the story, and they would say, absolutely, it makes perfect sense now. And so in verse 16, he says, Nobody puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. And then in verse 17, he gives a second example. He says, And neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put in fresh wineskins, and so that both can be preserved. So in both examples that you have there, you're taking something new and something old. And in both cases, you're trying to blend the two of those things together. But in both cases, you're trying to blend things together that can't be blend, blend? blended together. Forgive me. You can't take a new patch and try and match that up with a pa- an old pair of jeans. Because everything's going to appear to be fine when you sew it in to place but when you start washing those jeans pretty soon the new patch is going to begin to shrink just like the old garment had already shrunk and pretty soon it's going to start pulling away and you're going to have a bigger problem than when you started similarly you can't put new unfermented wine into a set of old wine skins because the pressure that's caused by the fermentation of the new wine is going to burst those old skins that had long since lost their elasticity and the result is you're going to have a bunch of ripped up skins and a puddle of wine on the ground there in front of you. And so Jesus gives these two examples. And they're both, they're kind of neat stories. But we ask ourselves, well, what's their point? Well, the point in both scenarios is exactly the same. That you can't mix the old institutions of Judaism. Not the Jewish religion, but kind of the ways of practice that had been adopted by the Jewish leaders. You can't mix those old institutions of Judaism with the new thing that Jesus is doing. Because Jesus didn't come to repair and reform these old systems of practice, but he came to institute a new covenant altogether. Specifically, Jesus did not come to fit himself into the religious, uh, the existing religious systems of his day, or maybe even to make slight variations to that system. And so he's not going then to change what he is doing or do something just because everybody else expects him to do it. For him to do that would be like sewing a new patch onto an old garment or to put new wine into old skins. And the Pharisees in particular, they were attempting to create a righteousness of their own 
that was based on keeping the law. But Jesus was ushering in a dispensation of grace, something completely different. You know, I think we've seen this principle of old wine, new wineskins, and old garments, new garments, and so on. I think we've seen this principle throughout the history of the church. Because historically, it seems as if there are periods of time when the church goes through this period of time where God is at work in a unique way, in a special way. And he is pouring out his spirit, leading many to to repentance. And we see that good things are happening and that growth is taking place and the Lord's work is being done. But then as time goes on, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever it be, as time begins to go on, people then begin to settle in and religious systems begin to form. And sadly, it seems that the work that God was doing even begins to slow down or even stop until the Lord will raise up a new work again. And it seems that historically, when that has happened, we kind of go through these waves historically, it seems that when that new work starts up again, oftentimes it's at odds with the religious systems that had been put in place as a result of the past work. And many times we even see historically that the existing systems even begin to rebel against the new work that God is doing. And thus the Lord has to raise up something new altogether. He has to go outside of the existing wineskins to accomplish his works. I think this is the reason why when you look at revivals in history, and you can look at revivals in American history, so often coming as a result of those revivals in American history, you see new denominations that are being born. And the reason why those new denominations are being born is because it's a new work that could not fit into the old system, it seems. It doesn't have to be that way, but that's sort of just the way it was. Calvary chapels, for instance, we are an example of this forming. We formed as a result of the religious revival of the 1970s. It was sort of a new work to contain this new wine, if you will. But here we are as a movement 50 years later. First time the Calvary really began to explode on the scene was in the late 1960s. So here we are 50 years later. And we could be at danger of being that old wineskin if God wants to do a new work, if we're not pliable to what it is the Lord might want to do. And so we have to guard ourselves from becoming stale and rigid and thus missing what the Lord might want to do. You know, here we as a Calvary in particular, we're a church of 18 years. We have to guard ourselves. But I think most significantly and most importantly for us is we are individual believers. And some of us have been individual or uh, believers for uh, just a few months. Others of us for many, many years. But each of us, we need to stay on our guard so that we would not miss the new work that the Lord might want to do in us and through us. You know, I remember when I was a young believer, I came to Christ when I was about 17 years of age. You know, I remember in sort of those early years, 20, 21, 22, you know, being excited about the work of the Lord and what the Lord might want to do and sharing that with some of the older believers that I had come in contact with, people that had been in the Lord for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. And I remember in enthusiasm saying, we should do this and hearing the response. Well, yeah, we tried to do that 10 years ago or 15 years ago. That doesn't work now. Let the dream die kind of thing. And I remember being turned off by that. And thinking, what are you talking about? We can do it. It'll be great, kind of thing. But, you know, an interesting thing began to occur in my life. Now, I've been in the Lord 20, 25 years. And now young people come to me and say, hey, we should do this. And you know what I wrestle with? 
saying to them, yeah, we tried that 15, 20 years ago. That won't work. We can't do that. You know, forget it. Let the dream die. And I'm becoming that old wineskin. I don't want to be an old wineskin. I want to be fresh that the Lord can work through me. And so I want to continually be open to what the Lord might want to do. Now, how do you do that? How do you keep yourself from becoming stale and rigid? I would suggest to you, it's pretty much how you keep yourself in the Lord in any other arena in the Lord. You stay tapped into him. And so it says in John chapter 17 about abiding in Christ, that that branch that is apart from the vine, that it's going to wither up and it's going to dry up and it's going to die. But it won't if it stays tapped into the source of life. It stays tapped into the vine. And so we pursue abiding the Lord. And so Jesus now here, he's having this conversation about why his disciples don't fast and so on. And while this discussion is going on here in the house, this grand theological discussion, life continues on for the rest of the people of society. Isn't that true, right? You think everything is about you and you're the center of existence here. I've convinced myself that the sun is not the center of the universe. Or What's the center of the universe? The sun, right? They say, uh, we used to believe it was the earth. I get mixed up here because it's so big or whatever. I don't even think the sun is the center of the universe. I believe I am the center of the universe. And I think many of you believe that as well, that everything in life revolves around us. But you know what? While we're in the midst of our little issues, other people are dealing with issues sometimes much, much bigger than our own. And that's a scenario that we have here. Because while Jesus and the disciples of John and the Pharisees, while they're all talking with one another and they're judging him for not being spiritual enough for how little he fasts and so on, a father comes bursting in on the scene. And we read about this starting in verse 18. And so it says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and he followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and he saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put aside outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. Well, there are actually two stories that are happening at the same time in this passage. Actually, two very similar stories. The first is of a desperate father whose 12 year old daughter is sick and dying. And the second is of a desperate woman who for 12 years herself has been sick and bleeding. And both of these individuals, they come to Jesus desperate. Both of these people, they come to him honestly as their very, very last hope. And verse 18, it begins by saying this, while Jesus was saying these things. And so once again, we see that Jesus, is his day is interrupted. It seems that every aspect of Jesus' life was one of interruptions you may recall when we were studying they were crossing over the sea of galilee that jesus decided it would be a good time to take a nap get a little nap in well that nap 
was interrupted by the storm on the Sea of Galilee. His most recent teaching time back there in the house in Capernaum, that was interrupted by four guys digging a hole in the ceiling and lowering their friend down into the midst. This meal at this party is interrupted by people that are questioning his theology and his practices. And now his explanation to those people about his theology and his practices, now that gets interrupted by a desperate father who's come to him on behalf of his dying daughter. And as we see in what I just read to you, even that interruption gets interrupted by a lady who comes to him for healing. One interruption after another. And through it all, Jesus just continues moving forward, looking at each as an opportunity to minister. I read that, and that's very challenging to me. Life is about interruptions. It's about interruptions. And how often we respond so poorly to them. Or we create sort of an aura so that people know, don't go in that room and interrupt him because you're going to get it if you do. But life is about interruptions, and, it, and they're all opportunities for us to minister. And Jesus saw each one of those. That's challenging to me, certainly. I imagine to you as well. Now, this particular interruption, it involves a ruler. And so it says in verse 18 that a ruler comes to him, comes bursting in on the scene and petitions Jesus to come and lay his hand on his daughter. There's no niceties, there's no platitudes, there's no waiting at the door for an official entry. The guy just gets right to it, falls down before Jesus, and he makes his request. Now we learn there's parallel passages to this passage. It's Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. And we learn in those two chapters, there are much more detailed accounts of this event. And so you might want to read through those two chapters or the portion of those chapters. But what we learn is this is that this ruler specifically is the ruler of the synagogue. We also learn his name. His name is Jairus. And so this is the account of the healing of Jairus' daughter. It's kind of a popular story. People know it by that title. And he's the ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue, ooh, got a little puberty there, excuse me. The ruler of the synagogue in any community was a man of enormous importance and influence in that community. It's said that the ruler of the synagogue possessed the three Ps, power, prestige, and prosperity. And so it's saying something that this enormously important and influential individual who's got power, prestige, and prosperity, it's saying something that he would, this ruler would come and fall down before Jesus. And the reason why he does is because he's desperate. And he's concluded that Jesus is his only hope. Now, this passage in Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, it says that his daughter has just died. Both Mark and Luke tell us that when he comes to Jesus, he says to Jesus that his daughter is dying. Well, that's different, isn't it? Has she died or is she dying? Where are we in this scenario? And the problem is this. The problem is that the translation that is given to us in Matthew is trying to communicate to us that she is at kind of death's door. You know when a doctor might come to a person and say, you know, hey, look, we, we've done all we can for your mother. Um, it's just a matter of time. We're going to try and keep her as comfortable as we can. That's where this little girl is. She, she's essentially died, though she hasn't actually died. And so this man comes to her and, or excuse me, comes to Jesus and in a state of desperation throws out all caution, 
throws out all convention, all of that to the wind, and he goes and seeks out Jesus. Now, no doubt, somewhere along the line, some thoughts are going through his mind. What are other religious leaders going to think if I, the most influential religious leader, go to this Jesus guy? What will this do to my position? Will I lose my job? Will I lose my home? What about my reputation? What about my livelihood? These are all questions that could have come into the guy's mind to keep him from coming to Jesus. But quite frankly, none of those things matter at this moment because his daughter is dying. And so he comes to the Lord and he begs the Lord to come and to heal his little daughter. Now, I think it's important to take note that the man's theology is not perfect. Matter of fact, his theology is a bit askew. Because in his action and in his words, he makes it clear that he believes the only way that his daughter can be healed is if Jesus comes and touches his daughter. But we have already learned about Jesus that Jesus doesn't actually even need to physically be in the room or physically touch that person. You recall the story where the centurion came to Jesus and Jesus said, well, I'll come. I'll come and touch your uh, servant. And he said, no, no, you don't have to come to my house. Only say the word and I know my servant will be healed. And Jesus marvels at that particular man's faith. But here now you have a guy that doesn't quite know all of the theology completely perfectly. You might look at him and he's a guy, he's not a perfect prayer. Have you ever prayed with folks that aren't perfect prayers? They don't quite know the words to say. Sometimes I pray with new believers. And sometimes those new believers will curse during their prayers as like adjectives. You know what I mean? And they don't think there's anything wrong with it. And, and I, you know, I, I don't think the Lord's that upset about it. I think it's like, that's cool. You'll get it soon enough. You know, you'll figure it out and you'll laugh at yourself later on here. But these guys, for emphasis, you know, are praying. And maybe this guy wasn't a perfect prayer. Maybe they didn't know exactly what to do and how to do it. You know, if he had to take a theology test, he probably wouldn't have gotten every single question right. But what he can do, he does. And he comes to Jesus in desperation. And he falls down before the Lord and he makes his request known to him. And notice the Lord, he honors that. It's such a sweet part of the story. The Lord honors that. Verse 19, it said, Jesus then rose and he followed him. So I think the lesson for us then is this, at least part of it. Even if you don't know all the proper formulas, don't let that stop you from coming to Jesus. Come to him in honesty, And he'll sort through your prayers. He'll make total sense of all of these things. That's what he does with this guy. And so here we are. And I imagine that Jairus is booking it. He's, come on, let's go. Let's move. Walking fast paced or running perhaps here. And Jesus, the disciples, I imagine, are trying to keep up with them. Everyone's hyped up their little uh, skirt, uh, robe or whatever. And everyone's moving as quickly as their feet will take them. And we don't have it here in this passage. But it's given to us in Mark and in Luke. It tells us that when Jesus gets back on the road, soon the crowds form again. Mark tells us that great crowds form around Jesus. Luke tells us that the people were pressing in on Jesus. And no doubt, those great crowds pressing in on the Lord are slowing down progress. And no doubt, Jairus is freaking out. Could we hurry up here? I told the first group a story. When I was about eight or ten years old, I was at my son, my brother's actually, excuse me, soccer game over here behind the bowling alley. And back then there used to be a set of woods and it had a little hill and 
There were like dirt paths through there that people ride their bikes or whatever. And so me and my friends were running around in those little, uh, in that little set of woods. And I came to one of those hills and it was a little slick and I slipped down the hill and I put my hands out to kind of protect myself and my wrist came right across a big old broken wine bottle and it slit my wrist in two different places pretty significantly. And so I come running out of the, uh, the woods and I find my parents and my dad throws me into his car and we begin racing down Parkway Avenue. We're going to go to the hospital down there uh, in Trenton. And, you know, there's people in the way. My dad's trying to save my life and there's people stopping at red lights and slowing down for this and slowing down for that. And my dad's like freaking out, yelling and beeping, flying down Parkway Avenue. Finally, the police pull him over. And my dad is like, look, I don't care. You can give me any ticket you want. My kid is bleeding to death. You got to get him to the hospital. And then they they led us there to the hospital and that kind of stuff. You know, but all the interruptions were frustrating, if you will, to my dad. And you can imagine this guy. He's trying to get back as quickly as he can to his daughter so that she won't die in the meantime. And then there comes another interruption. And this time it's in the form of a woman who it says reaches out to Jesus for healing for herself. Her story, it's interjected here in verse 20. It says, Behold, the woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I could touch his garment, I will be made well. Now, again, the story is told in much greater detail in both Mark and Luke. And so we learn some things from those chapters. Some things we learn is this. I told you a great crowd. I told you that they were pressing in on him. We also learn that this woman had been suffering from this malady for 12 years. And we learn that here, too. But that she had, it said there, exhausted herself and all of her resources going to doctors and to no avail. As a matter of fact, Mark chapter 5 tells us that even after spending all of her money and going to all of these doctors, that her condition grew even worse. And that's important to know because it's an indicator to us that just like the ruler of the synagogue, this lady has come to the end of herself. She has come to the point of desperation. She tried every other means possible only to come to the place where she said, my last hope is this Jesus fellow. And so both of these individuals, Jairus and the woman, they come to Jesus desperate, but they don't come to Jesus hopeless because he's their last hope. And so they come and they petition him. Now, like Jairus, this woman's theology, it also isn't perfect because he was convinced that Jesus had to come and touch the child. Well, notice she's convinced that she's got to get to him and touch him. And so like the first guy, her thinking is a bit askew, thinking she has to actually touch the Lord for her malady to be healed. It talks about she's trying to get to a particular portion of the garment. It was more likely that the portion of the garment she's trying to get to are these tassels that hung down around the neck of the Jewish men. And it might either be part of the garment that they're wearing or it might be a rope of sorts or like a a thing, a scarf of sorts that kind of hangs down over them. And at the bottom of them, they had these tassels. And the tassels were blue in color. Moses gives us instructions about them in the Old Testament. I believe it's in the book of Leviticus. And a Jewish male was told to take those tassels and put them around their neck every time they left their home. Because it was a reminder to them as they went about and they walked in the streets and all of that kind of stuff. It was a reminder to them that they were a child of God. The idea being, you know, you put that there, it kind of hangs there. You're a child of God, live like a child of God. That was a reminder of. So it was sort of a mark of their holiness, if you will. 
And in her mind, she had developed this idea that if this holy guy has holy tassels, well, then they must be healing tassels. And so in her mind, she figured, I have to get there, I have to reach out, and I have to touch those tassels. It's almost superstitious in nature that if I can only get to the magic tassels, then I will be healed. The reality is that these tassels, they're just merely pieces of string. They're designed to adorn the garments and remind the Jews of keeping the commands of God. But in her mind, this was her point of faith. And Jesus honors this here as well. It's not totally correct theologically, but Jesus honors it nonetheless. It reminds me of the way some people, for instance, treat their Bibles. You know, and so some people, you know, they'll hold their Bible and think that they'll be safe because they're holding their Holy Bible. Nothing can happen to me. It, it doesn't work that way. That's sort of superstitious uh, in nature. You see old movies with the vampires and, you know, you hold the crucifix or whatever and the vampire can't get in or whatever. It's sort of superstitious in nature. It's not the Bible. It's not the crucifix. It's not the tassel. It's Jesus himself. But Jesus sifts through sort of the errors of her thinking and she's healed when she reaches out and touches that tassel. Now, her plan was to sort of slip in and slip out. And that's important to note because what has just happened here is a very, very big deal. This woman has had an issuance of blood. We don't know exactly what that was. Some think it was her period that just never ended. But she has this issuance of blood which would make her unclean according to Jewish law. And typically that makes her unclean for a week or so. And then sort of you're kind of back into the normalcy of life. But she's had now this issuance of blood for 12 years. And as such, she is an unclean person, which needs to stay away from and limit contact with other people lest you make them ceremonially unclean as well. And in our story, if the people are pressing in on Jesus, crowded in on Jesus, everybody's shoulder to shoulder touching one another, if the people are pressing in on her, then she's pressing in on all of them as well. And that's a violation of the Old Testament law. But none of that matters to her because she has to get to him and touch his garment. We also know this about the woman. She's had this issuance of blood for 12 years. And so she's been sick for 12 years, no doubt, in a weakened state. But in that state, she pushes and she shoves and she squeezes her way through the crowd so that she can get to Jesus. And just like Jairus did earlier, she has thrown off all caution. She's thrown off all convention. She's going to get to Jesus. Violation of this law or that law, no matter what. And again, that's the reason her plan is to slip in and to slip out. I'll go get healed, and then I'll go home, and no one will know about it, and I will have violated the law, but everything will be okay because no one will actually know about it. But Jesus has a different plan. Mark tells us, that Jesus, perceiving that power went out of him, says, who is it that touched my garments? Now, it's a ridiculous question in the context of the story because there's 50 people pressing in on him. Everybody is touching him. Matter of fact, some of the disciples are like, Lord, everybody's touching you. How could you ask such a question? And Jesus said, no, no, somebody touched me. They touched me. I was talking about they grazed up against me. Somebody reached out and touched me in faith. Who was it? Now, does Jesus not know who it was? So why is he asking the question? You all said, yes, he knows uh, in, for the tape. 
All right, uh, for the record here, I feel like a lawyer. For the record, they shook their heads, yes. All right, Jesus knows who it is who's reached out in faith. And so I would suggest to you, the reason why Jesus asks the question is for the sake of the woman, okay? First off, as I said, the meaning is not just brushed up against, but somebody reached out to me for healing. He wants to call attention to that. Secondly, he calls her out to welcome her in. And let me explain what I mean by this. This woman had just done, if you will, something against her conscience. Her conscience was telling her, you're not allowed to go over there into that crowd. You're not allowed to get close enough to that guy. If you touch all those people, you're going to make them unclean. You're going to violate the law. But she did it anyway. And so she violates her conscience so she can get to Jesus and be touched and be healed by this religious, religious leader, contrary to her, be her better judgment. And then she does it, and she wants to get out of there in her guilt and in her shame, but at least I'll be healed. All right, you see where we're going with this? Now Jesus calls attention to her, and I believe he calls attention to her because he doesn't want her to have guilt and shame. He doesn't want her to go home hiding and, you know, not telling anyone about it because if I tell someone about it, she talks all the time, she's going to tell the whole town, and everyone's going to know what I did, no offense to you. Everyone's going to know what I did, and so she's going to hide in her shame. He doesn't want her to hide in her shame. And so he calls her out to invite her in, to tell her essentially that what she did wasn't wrong. And notice what he does to her. He says here in verse 22, he says, take heart, daughter. He doesn't say, hey, lady, or something like that. He calls her daughter. It's a sweet, tender, dear, inviting term. And he uses it on purpose here. And so he invites her in. And then thirdly, I think very gently Jesus corrects her theology because it wasn't his magic tassels that healed her, but rather it was her faith that healed her. And he corrects her thinking and he says to her, your faith has made you well. Now, I do think it's important to note that it wasn't just the, w the fact that this woman had faith that she was healed, but rather what she placed her faith in, or maybe more properly who she placed her faith in. She had put her faith in doctors previously, but that failed her. She put her faith in all of her resources and she spent them all and that failed her. Now she was putting her faith in Christ and it was Christ that healed her, that brought healing into this woman's life. And so she's healed. Now remember, while all this is going on, there's still a desperate father that's standing there. You remember him? You kind of forgot about him, didn't you? And there's a father looking at his clock, tapping his foot, wondering, come on, can we get moving here? No doubt thinking, look, I appreciate this lady's need, but she'll be fine tomorrow. She can come tomorrow. We got to get to my daughter. She's lying at death's bed. It's not recorded for us here in Matthew, but it, it is very important for us to note that in Mark and Luke, we discover that while the healing of this woman is going on and while they're having this little dialogue, wasting time in Jairus's mind, that somebody comes to Jairus, one of his uh, servants or people from his household comes and he says, don't bother the teacher any longer. Your daughter has died. Don't bother the teacher any longer. Your daughter has died. And you have to imagine, I have a little daughter. We almost lost my son Jake when he was a year and a half old. We found him in our pool. He had been in the pool for who knows how long and uh, almost lost him at that particular time, just another 30 seconds or so, and, and life would have been completely different for us. And so I have a sense of the idea of losing a daughter and how close we came to losing a son. And here now the guy gets the word that he actually did lose his daughter. 
And you can imagine the knife that in that moment went into this guy's heart and, and ev- all the thoughts flood in that it's over. The thoughts flood in, I failed my daughter. I didn't get there in time. In his mind, immediately, all hope is lost. You can see it on his face. Every one of us, we, we can picture it in our mind. You can see it on this guy's faith, face here that all hope is lost. And it's hearing that interaction that Luke chapter 8 tells us that Jesus quickly jumps into the conversation between the servant and these leaders. And Jesus and this leader, Jesus says in Luke chapter 8, he says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Do not fear. I imagine in my mind that as this goes on and the guy's shoulders drop and his head drops and the tears probably start coming, and Jesus, I imagine, he grabs him by the shoulders And he looks him in the eyes and he says, don't fear. You just keep believing. Now, this guy believed the works that Jesus did previously. That's why he came to Jesus. Now, this guy is going to have to believe the words that Jesus said. I think that's quite a bit harder, don't you? It's one thing if I can see it, see and believe it. If I can see it. But now he has to trust Jesus' words when he says to him, don't fear Keep believing. And now he's going to have to have faith in Jesus' words alone. Jesus says to him, fear not, keep believing, and she would be healed. And it's those words that he would have to trust. We pick up in Matthew, verse 23. It says, now when Jesus came to the ruler's house and he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all the district. Well, together, this crowd of people around Jesus, they make their way to Jairus's house where there's another crowd of people. And we read that the crowd is making a commotion. It talks about the, the flute players that are playing. Seems a little weird, seems a little odd, but... You need to know it was customary in that day for people to visibly and demonstrably mourn the death of a person. We have that in some of our cultures here in the United States. And you can go to some funeral services that are very prim and proper, and you can go to other uh, funeral services where it seems there's weeping and wailing of sorts. Well, in that culture, weeping and wailing was the norm. It was customary to visibly and demonstrably mourn and in fact the greater the display of mourning the more important the deceased seemed to be and so for that reason it was quite normal for a grieving family to hire professional mourners people that would come to your funeral and just cry and wail or play the flutes or you know uh, instruments or whatever Uh, as part of the ceremony and so that's what's going on here you sort of get a glimpse of who these people are when you observe that the crowd quickly goes from making a commotion and weeping and wailing loudly as mark tells us to mocking and laughing the lord jesus there seconds later you go from weeping and wailing to telling jokes and laughing it's because they were professionals at this and they laugh at the lord because they know clearly this little girl has died And here comes this foolish rabbi on the scene declaring that she's fallen asleep, saying she's not dead but sleeping. Now, we know that Jesus, 
when he declares she's sleeping, he's not denying the fact that she's died from an earthly perspective. He's using sleep as a euphemism for death. I think at the same time, he's also essentially declaring as easy as it is to raise a person who's fallen asleep and you go over and you kind of shake their little shoulder and you say, hey, it's time to get up. As easy it is, it is to wake that type of a person up is it's going to be as easy for me to wake up this dead person. Now, I know some of you with teenagers are thinking, it's not that easy to wake up my teenager <laughs> or whatever, but in the typical scenario. And so Jesus is going to raise this little girl. You may recall another time Jesus was speaking to his disciples of his friend Lazarus. And Lazarus was sick and he had fallen sick. And Jesus had said, our friend Lazarus had fallen asleep. And the disciples were like, well, that's great. He'll get a good sleep in. His body will replenish itself and he'll be strong and good to go in the morning. And Jesus said, look, guys, Lazarus died. And he says it kind of plain as matter of fact there. Well, that's what's going on here. As with Lazarus, so too, this little girl has died. And Jesus would come and lay his hand on her and say, hey, it's time to get up. Just like he would someone that was sleeping. He would raise this little girl from this sleep. So first thing he does is he puts the mockers outside. And then with the girl's parents and a, couple, a few of his disciples, Jesus takes this lifeless girl's hand and he says, it's not here in this version, but we read about it in Mark. He says to her, little girl, arise. It's written in Aramaic, the language of the people there. He says to her, Talitha kumai. Literally, what that means is little lamb, arise. What a sweet way to speak to this little girl. He says, little lamb, wait, arise. And you know what happens? The little girl arises. She gets up. It says in Matthew 9.25, and the girl arose. And I've jotted down here in my notes, who's laughing now? You know, who's laughing now? You know who's laughing? Jairus is laughing. Mrs. Jairus, I don't know her real name. We're going to call her that. She's laughing. But theirs is not a laughter of mockery. Theirs is a laughter that comes with rejoicing. Jesus had said he would heal their daughter. And despite the mockery, these two trusted Jesus at his word. I imagine many of us in this room, you've experienced mocking as a result of the trust that you have placed in Christ. You've no doubt heard comments like, come on, you don't really believe those fairy tales, do you? Or maybe you've heard things like, look, you're never going to be more than just an addict. Or you're never going to be more than just a miserable husband. Or you're never going to be more than just a lazy kid or a terrible father or whatever. You fill in the blank with the comments that you've heard associated with your faith. In some cases, the insults and the mocking that we hear, it comes from ourselves. Our own thoughts and our own consciences, maybe even the enemy thrown in as well, begins to insult and mock us. And yet, despite all of those insults and mocking, like Mr. and Mrs. Jairus, you've continued to trust God at His Word. And you've continued to trust God that as He says in Philippians, Paul says this, that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so the mocking may come. What do you do with the mocking? You just put it out. And you continue to trust Jesus at his word. So what's the ultimate value then of this passage? What's the point of application? I, I doubt any of us here, or, or very few of us if any, are going to come to this place where our little daughter perhaps is dying in this way. 
And so that's not necessarily the application. But what's the application? Well, I would suggest to you, Jesus' instructions to this desperate family are the same instructions that He gives to you and I. And that is this, fear not and keep believing. Because I don't know all of you well enough to know what life circumstances have brought your way. I don't know what life circumstances have brought your way. And certainly none of us can say with any form of certainty what life circumstances will bring our way. But Jesus speaks this word, if you will, in preparation for whatever it is that does come our way. And he says to us, do not fear, only believe. And so my brother and sister in Christ, will you do that? Will you trust the Lord at his word? Will you say essentially this, even though, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing, and even though I don't know how you're going to do it, and quite honestly, even though I'm, sh- I'm not sure why you are doing what you're doing, I'll trust you in all of this. Will you trust the Lord? Not because you have it all figured out, but simply because he said to you to trust him. Will you believe that he is trustworthy? Now, a lot of you are shaking your heads. Yeah, that's awesome. Some of you are no doubt thinking this. I don't think I have that kind of faith. I told you, my son, we almost lost him. For probably about two years following that, any phone call, this is before cell phones, any phone call that I would receive from my wife was one of great dread, particularly if it was at an unusual time. And so I'd be in my classroom and the phone would ring and it would be the secretary of the school and she would say, hey, we have a phone call. Your wife is on the line. And I would dread the call because I knew, I knew it was just going to be a matter of time. We're gonna, he's going to take my son. The Lord will take him. And I can't handle that, Lord. I can't. And going through that struggle. And it was in that process where finally it was like, Lord, I can't keep living this way. Where I finally said, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do. I certainly don't want you to do that. But whatever it is you decide to do, I'll trust you. The Lord taught me these words. Do not fear. Just continue to trust. Now you say, you know what? I don't think I have enough faith to do that. And I'll just end with this. I think that's okay if you don't have enough faith to do that. You remember that story of the father? It's, it's in Mark. You maybe read it another time in your life. There's the story of the father that brings his demon-possessed son to the Lord And he says to Jesus, he says, look, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us. And Jesus responds to him. He says, if I can, he says, all things are possible for one who believes. And I I just so very much appreciate the response of the desperate father in very open transparency. He says this, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. He says, yeah, I got this little kernel of belief, but I don't think I have enough belief. Help my unbelief. And so maybe you're like that father this morning. You want to believe. You even believe a little bit, but doubts begin to creep in. And again, I don't know what the circumstances are in your life, but maybe you're asking yourself this question and wondering, is it possible that Christ could really heal my marriage? And you doubt that. Could the Lord really set me free from those addictions? And you doubt that. Could you really experience growth and consistent victory in your walk with the Lord? And you doubt whether that's even possible. Well, the answer to all of those questions, the answer is yes. Trust the Lord that he can do that work. And when the doubt enters in, that's when you honestly cry out to him and you say, Lord, I believe you. Help my unbelief. 
And the Lord in His faithfulness always answers that prayer. Amen, friends? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we delight in You. And Lord, I, uh, I just cannot imagine trying to walk this walk by ourselves. That is, that where you weren't along for the journey, that you were sort of up in heaven and we're just kind of hoping to get there. But Lord, we just rejoice in the fact that you are with us every step of the way. You're here in this journey, Lord. When the knife pierces our hearts, you grab us by the shoulders, you look us in the eye, you speak words of truth and encouragement into our hearts. Lord, when we come to you and we just can't find it in ourselves to believe and we're doubting, you essentially say to us, that's all right, just bring that little bit of belief you do have and I'll work with it. And Lord, we just rejoice in that. You haven't left us here as orphans. You care for us as a loving father. And so, Lord, we come to you like these two, Jairus and uh, this woman, and we come to you confident that you indeed are our only hope, that our hope is indeed in you and in you alone. We cast ourselves completely upon you to take us and to carry us. Lord, I do pray that by your spirit, Lord, you would minister to each heart here this morning. Each thing that each person is dealing with, some more significant perhaps than others. Lord, you know what's going on. So, Lord, minister life into their hearts right now, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.